Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. So today we are excited to bring another crew who also loves to talk about amazing women in history and talk about all the amazing or even unknown accomplishments they did. So let's welcome Olivia. Hi, Olivia. Hi. So happy to be here. Yay. Olivia, thank you for joining us. Can you introduce yourself for us? Yeah, my name's Olivia Mickle, and I teach women's studies in Denver, Colorado, and I am the host of the What's Her Name Women's History Podcast with my sister and co-host, Katie Nelson. Uh, And we are so excited that you have joined us. You and I actually kind of connected because, well, I say you and I because I was the one handling the social media at that point (laughs) um, because we got listed together. And I was like, oh, my God, it's going to be a crossover. So exciting. (laughs) So can you tell a little bit about yourself for our listeners and about your fantastic podcast and the reason you and your sister decided to start all of it? Yeah. So... I was finishing up grad school and jobs were very thin on the ground here. I live in Boulder and like the people bagging your groceries have a master's degree. So it's really hard to get an academic job here. And I was afraid I wasn't going to find anything. Thank goodness I did. But, um, and I didn't want to do nothing with my degree. It felt like, it felt frustrating to not do anything with this degree that I had just earned. And so I called Katie, my sister, who is a history professor, and we had been talking for a while about doing something for women's history since it was the perfect crossover of our interests. And so we thought about writing articles or doing a blog or something to get more women's history into the world. And at that point, podcasting was just about to shift from, do you know what a podcast is, to do you listen to podcasts? And so we realized if we can jump on this early on, then we have a, an advantage over all the other podcasts that will start. And this really seems like the, the venue that we're looking for. We want this to be public and accessible and something that you can use in classes, but also something that your next door neighbor will enjoy. And so we decided to do this, to try to find a way to do a podcast. We knew nothing about it at all. And humanities professors learning to audio edit was hilarious, I will tell you, um, and incredibly frustrating. But so we we weren't really exactly sure what we wanted to focus on. Just, you know, we knew women's history and that we were frustrated that you keep hearing the same five women's stories over and over again. And there are, I don't know if you know this, but there are more women than five who did this what? history. What? <laughs> I thought there like, were only there, four. There, there might be dozens of women who did stuff throughout dozens. history. <laughs> and, and Katie's idea was that she really wanted to focus on all the women that have not been talked about. The, the you know, Our tagline is fascinating women you've never heard of. And uh, she knows this now. I didn't tell her at the time. I thought it was a terrible idea. Because <laughs> you, I thought it was a brilliant idea, but a terrible idea. Because as you know, it's really hard to get people interested in women's history anyway. And doing a whole podcast around women that you've never heard of before just seemed like such a hard sell to me. And I was worried that nobody would listen to it. And then I was walking through a graveyard, as one does. Uh I do. I'm informed (laughs) that people don't, but apparently (laughs) 
they, I do. And I was walking through this great old cemetery in Boulder, and I just sort of stumbled across this gravestone that didn't have any name on it. All it said was mother. And I was just horrified. I mean, it, it gutted me because I'm, I'm a mother, and I love being a mother. I have three children who I love, and I am not mother. Mm-hmm. I am Olivia, and mm-hmm. I am more than that identity. And I just, it suddenly just felt so horrifying to me that this woman was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, that usually there's a larger gravestone with all the names and, and you know, that it was probably attached to something at one point, but nothing else was there anymore. And all she was was mother. And I freaked out, frankly, and <laughs> called Katie on the way back to my car out of the Yes, we're doing it. We're doing the Forgotten Women podcast. We have to rescue these women from obscurity. <laughs> and, and that was it. And she claims that since then that I've been forcing her to do it. But it was her idea. So... <laughs> I mean, no, that's and fair. It's been, it's been really fun to, to do, and it's been way more successful than we expected, especially given that setup of you've never heard of any of these people, but we're going to make you interested in them. And it's been really fun to have it take off and and be much, much more successful than we anticipated it being. I love that. And it is the last day of March, which is still technically Women's History right. Month. We've all it forgotten really? it. Oh, I know. my God. It's March, I know. March 98th. <laughs> <laughs> The longest month in the world. It really <laughs> but, feels like it's been this month for over two years now. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I'm like, wait, I've been in quarantine for how long? Because it feels like six years. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I died and came back. And <laughs> it's still the yeah. same time frame, right? It's Groundhog's Day all the time. Well, yeah. we were so excited when talking with you about bringing in some women that you want to talk about. And can you kind of uh, introduce us to who you have brought for our listeners? Yeah. So um, I have picked two of our women who I think are some of my favorite stories to tell. And and it really is hard. I mean, it's, you probably get this one, which is your favorite episode? All of them. (laughs) Don't make me choose a child. But (laughs) but I think these are two um, important ones to tell and, and some of the most surprising that they have been erased Mm -hmm. or that they have been ignored. Because some of the women that we've profiled are are just genuinely, like, no one knows about them except the person that we talk to. Because every, every episode we have a guest. And mm-hmm. some of them just genuinely, like, this guest found this person and no one in the world knows about them except this person that's talking to us. And those are exciting. But these ones are f- more well-known in certain circles and certain areas of the world, but still just way less celebrated than they should be. So I've chosen Harriet Jacobs, who is the author of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And she was a self-emancipated slave in the American South. And Noor Jahan, who was the only Mughal empress to rule as a co-emperor and sort of even more important than her husband. Right. So we're India and the U.S. Yes. Couple centuries apart. Yeah, you know. <laughs> there you and, go. <laughs> and opposite sides of the world. Right, right. And completely different situations. One was Extremely an empress and one was yes. a slave. So, yeah. yeah, I love this variation. So, yeah, yeah, tell us about Harriet Jacobs. I'm not going to lie. When I was delving into it, we kind of had a similar story from our female first, also named Harriet, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think we even set up the episode with the, her similarities to 
to Harriet Tubman, yeah. the famous Harriet, because the one of the things that is frustrating about women's history is that we have one slot for each story, right? right. We have one slot for a runaway slave, and we have one slot for a pilot, and we and we well, we already talked about a black woman singer, so now there's no more room for them. And there's plenty of room for everyone. Absolutely. We talk about all kinds of kings, and we don't just have room for one queen. Right. But her story is bananas. Like, <laughs> you couldn't make it up. If you made it up, no one would believe you. And that's what happened, is that her story is so amazing and ridiculous that for 100 years, everybody thought it was fiction. Mm-hmm. They believe that this must be a composite story trying to invoke the worst possible experiences in order to serve abolition. And instead, it's the absolutely factual narrative of this real woman who was an enslaved person, who emancipated herself, and whose story is not at all what we expect. Right. And that's what I love about her is that we, when we think of, in the U.S., when we think of runaway slave stories— the story is that you run away, that you run north, and you, if you're lucky, you go all the way to Canada, but at least you run to the north. You leave the location, and you go somewhere else, and that's how you become free. And Harriet Jacobs didn't. Mm-hmm. She ran away across the street mm-hmm. because she was the man who owned her who probably stole her by forging a will, um, which is a, a whole other horrific side of the story. She probably should have been freed, but he forged a will and he comes to own her and is at least sexually harassing her and probably more. She can't tell the truth about this in 19th century writing. Eventually threatens to sell her children to try to force her to put up with his sexual advances. And she knows that as long as she is there, he's going to keep trying to abuse her children to get to her. But she doesn't have any way to get north. She doesn't have any funds. She doesn't have a network. She doesn't know where the Underground Railroad is running. And so she runs away across the street to her grandmother's house, where in I didn't know this was going to be this appropriate when I chose her for this, but where she self-isolates in a coffin-sized space in her grandmother's attic for seven years. Wow. Now, if we're all losing our minds after two weeks, right. and we can still go to the grocery store, and we can sit up, yeah. she, she is l- literally laying down in a space that is seven by 10 by three feet tall, and it's in the, the eaves of the attic, so it's three feet tall at the point, but it slopes down to the side. She can lay on one side, She can't even lay down and roll over in this space for seven years. Wow. Uh, It's, I genuinely don't even know how to think about this, right? My back's already hurting thinking about this. I know. (laughs) And our our guest, Maria Wendell, who's wonderful, she's a professor at CU Boulder, and she talks about when she teaches this book, she tapes out on the floor these dimensions and the tables in the classroom are exactly three feet tall. So she teaches it from under the table. Wow. Just to help them realize how small this space is. And, you know, after one hour, 
she can barely get up. Yeah. And, I mean, very occasionally in the middle of the night, they would sneak her down and let her walk around a little. And that's the only reason she can walk. But she has physical damage to her body for the rest of her life from this. Yeah. She has difficulty walking and she has back problems. And, and you know, aside from the the extreme isolation and the, you know, being forced to be in this space, it's also, it's North Carolina and it's, you know, 112 degrees and 100% humidity and there are bugs. And this is not a modern attic. This is right. just planks and it's raining and it's hot and then it's freezing cold and it, she is just entombed alive in this space. And that that to her is preferable to what looked from the outside as a good situation as an enslaved person, I think really drives home. We can tell all the narratives we want about, oh, slavery wasn't that bad. It was bad enough that this woman spent seven years in a coffin right. to escape. Right, yeah. And worse than that to me is that her children didn't even know where she was. Her grandmother knows where she is and her uncle knows where she is. No one else knows where she is. And so she can see her children in the street. She can hear them visiting her grandmother's house and they don't know she's there. Right. That I just can't, I can't right. imagine. Right, yeah. It's brilliant too right. because he's not looking here. Right. No one would stay here and he immediately <laughs> assumes she's gone north and she plays into that. She is writing letters as if right. she's in New York and sending them with people to mail back from the North. And he is spending all of this time, he keeps going North and wasting all this time looking for her yeah. when she's 500 feet away. And he has no idea she's there. I mean, it's brilliant. It really and is. horrifying and sobering and amazing. Eventually, he agrees to sell her children to their father, who's a white lawyer in town, and so she knows her children are safe. He doesn't free his children, mm -hmm. this lawyer, but at least they're not going to get sold to the plantation anymore. So then she eventually does go north and gets incredibly involved in abolition. She's running reading rooms. She is working on running other slaves. You know, she's doing all of this incredible work, but mostly she's focusing on education. Mm -hmm. She was educated because the the woman who owned her before this man treated her well for an enslaved person and educated her. And she knew how important that was to be able to read and write, to be able to escape in a way from the, the absolute brutal reality of her world. So she starts some of the first colored schools. She starts these massive education programs for all of these escaping and, and freed slaves. And she is a huge force for black education mm -hmm. in the northern United States and just a, a hugely important person. And so when she publishes this memoir anonymously, because she, at the point she publishes this memoir, she is still officially owned by Dr. Norcom, her, mm -hmm. the man who owns her, or Dr. Norcom's daughter technically owns her. And... So she publishes this memoir anonymously and no one knows who it is and it eventually gets, it's so, it's so wild that people assume it must be fake and it must be written by a white woman. Mm. And so the woman who writes a preface for her, one of her friends, 
it starts being ascribed to her, Lydia Child. And even though she keeps saying, no, 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 I didn't write this, but that's how it's taught for 100 years in schools, that this is fiction by a white woman. And it's not until the 1980s someone starts putting this together and, and realizes, wait a minute, this story tracks exactly with the things that that important, famous abolitionist educator Harriet Jacobs said about her life, tracks everything down, and even to the, the floor plans of the houses and the description of all of these places, it matches exactly, and they realize this was Harriet Jacobs who wrote wow. this. So she was already important and famous, and no one knew she wrote this book. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's just unbelievable to me. So it took over a hundred, like 140 years almost for them to yeah. realize who this belonged to. Wow. Right. When, even though when it first came out, it wasn't sold as fiction. It was sold as this is a narrative. This is a true narrative. But there were some fake narratives floating around. Of course. And, but I think, you know, it's very easy for people to say, well, and I, I'm sure that there was an element of this is very well written. It must be a white woman. Mm-hmm. And it's not employing all of the tricks that we expect and... And so it just, it makes me so happy that she's getting credit now and it is being taught a lot more in classes, but we don't have enough slave narratives, as this genre is called, already taught, but when we do read them, we read Frederick Douglass's or Mm. we read these men's narratives when, frankly, her story is the wildest story that you have ever heard about all this. I mean, this is the very pared down, there's so much more going on in her story than these tiny little vignettes here. Right. And, you know, running off over and over again, Norcom trying to find her and the white family she's living with, sending her off with their baby so that she can escape. Like, no, you, no one will stop you if you have a white baby with you. Go, go, go. And just astonishing. And the the way that she talks about the importance of emancipating herself, that one of her friends eventually purchases her to free her. Mm. And while that's a a very kind act. And she acknowledges like that was probably the best way to prevent me from being sold back into slavery. It breaks her heart because once again, she's been, you know, after decades of being free of her own work, she is again, she said, now history has a bill of sale that Harriet Jacobs was sold in the 19th century in New York City Mm. when I had already freed myself. Mm-hmm. So it it's complicated and it's messy and it doesn't conform to the ways that we like to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. And this really was the first one that pointed out that women have an exceptionally specific problem when they are enslaved people, right? Mm-hmm. That now our standard narrative of slavery includes sexual violence, but it didn't until that point. No one had talked about it and it was carefully hidden away right. as a thing that didn't happen and... And she's the one who shone a light on it and said, women, if you value Christianity, if you value fidelity in marriage, you have to abolish slavery because look what's happening right under your nose. Right. It was just brilliantly strategic writing too. Right. Yeah, one of the things I read while um, we were researching this, there was a quote that our researchers said that this was specifically for white women. 
and yeah. for them to acknowledge that this is something that's happening and to call out the patriarchy for sexual tyranny over black women like herself and that she was trying to put it in delicate ways, but mm-hmm. to let them know this is actually happening and you're allowing yeah. this to happen. And it's happening in your house. Exactly. Yeah. Because Where? I think until it had been talked about, of course, most women knew this was happening because it's happening in their house. Right. But it's not spoken about, and so they don't know that it's happening everywhere. It's humiliating and shameful that it's happening in my house. But once I find out that it's happening everywhere, this is not me. This is not a me problem. This is a societal problem, Mm -hmm. right? It's not that I can't Mm -hmm. keep my husband's interest, which is usually how it was framed, horrifyingly. Mm -hmm. It's that this system is a system of sexual assault that we have, you know, codified. Right. And that has to go if we're going to call ourselves Christians. Right. Yeah, and I did like her point of saying that uh, she... Almost, it almost seemed like she was implying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it was a lesser evil to have uh, this love affair with this white man. In oh, order, definitely. In yeah. order to kind of validate what's happening and, and to actually pull herself from that situation as well. Right, yeah. That her, her only choices were succumb to, I mean, in the story, she doesn't succumb, but yeah. right, that's not a choice you can make. Right. Uh, to her owner who is trying to rape her or have an affair consensually, whatever we can argue about what consent means in this scenario, with a white man who at least might be able to buy her children, his children, right? Right. And might at least protect them from this system in a tiny amount and might at least give her some semblance of agency that she made a choice to do this. And right. But she knows very well that this is a choice that will be hugely frowned on by these very devout Christian abolitionist women she's writing to. Right. And that balancing act she has to do of, that's the point. Look right. what choices you left me. You right. left me no choices. My choices are affair, her owner wouldn't let her marry the man she wanted to marry, a a free black man. So she doesn't have choices outside of these ones. And she made the best choice she could, even though she says repeatedly, knowing her audience, I know this was wrong, but it was less wrong than the other choices. Right. And that man was Sam Treadwell Sawyer, who ended up being in the U.S. House of Representatives, right? Right. Yeah. Which also has a significance. Yeah, and who sent, who bought his children and then sent them to work for his white children as oh. enslaved people. I mean, they, they treated them a little better. No, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> they, he, he bought his children and put them to work. Yeah. It's just, it's not the white knight story that we want it to be, which is an important thing to pay attention to, you Ooh. know? And that's kind of... There the are whole... no white saviors in this story. <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of her point is, hey, uh, I think quote she said to tell you the truth, let it cost me what it may. Yeah. yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense in this, like, th- there's no good situation. This is the yeah. best that I could do. And now I'm able to fight for my rights and for others and let people know the atrocities that are happening that you are turning a blind eye to, which yeah. is really significant of a conversation in itself. Yeah, it's a, I mean, aside from the story, which is all very, I mean, it seems 
it's the first time you read it, you know, students read it and go, this can't be true. This right. is exaggerated. It's verified. It's fact-checked. She is underplaying right. the story, if and anything. Yeah. They, they, they literally said that she was kind of trying to make it mild enough that people would read it. Right, <laughs> right yeah. You can't tell the truth about what really happened right. or it'll be too vile for ladies to read. Right. I mean, and walking that line of, making it voyeuristically exciting enough that people want to read it who might not be interested in abolition, but also not selling out your own dignity. I mean, it, it's a masterful piece right. of writing. It right. really is. And and the woman who edited it, Lydia Child, again, often, even when they said, once they realized, oh, she didn't write this, Harriet Jacobs write it, there are a lot of people who still say, well, she heavily edited. But she herself was very upfront and said, I did almost nothing. Mm-hmm. I moved a few things around. Mm-hmm. I this she wrote this. I didn't fix this. This is how she wrote it, um, and that urge to delegitimize her voice, I think, is it tells us a lot, and it's upsetting. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's an uh, amazing book. I really strongly recommend everybody read it. It's just astonishing from a plot perspective, from a literary perspective, from a history perspective. It's a gem of a book. Right. And her daughter went on to become an extremely important educator. And I mean, she just, she really, she made a powerful impact on the world and changed it in really important ways, even when no one knew that she wrote this. And now that we put these things together, that this woman wrote this book, that's, it's amazing. So yay, Harriet Jacobs. (laughs) I hope she, she deserves... A lot more attention than she's getting. And she died in 1897 in D.C., right? Yeah. And she was a significant impact in just women and bondage and slavery and, and again, the horrendous things that were happening that people oftentimes want to ignore because it it, it just, you know, shames their sensibilities. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the, the determination of so many people... To clean this up and right. to to convince ourselves that slavery wasn't that bad. Right. It, it was so much worse than you can imagine. Imagine the worst thing you can imagine about right. slavery, and it was worse than that. And just, let's just go, it, slavery, the word of itself, any form, right. is going to be bad. That's such an right. obnoxious conversation and saying ownership is not a bad thing of a right. person. Well, as long as, <laughs> you know, as long as they weren't physically beaten, it wasn't that bad. no. <laughs> You owned a person. You owned a person. They didn't get paid. They didn't get any kind of compensation. They didn't get help. They weren't treated as equals. That means it's bad. (laughs) (laughs) And whatever the greatest situation is. Yeah. If you wouldn't be willing to trade right now, then it was bad. (laughs) We have some more of our conversation, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. So let's get back into it. Now let's go back even further, as you said. Back into the past and on the the other side of the world. Yes, and tell us about our next famous, fabulous woman. Yeah, Uh, Noor Jahan, Empress Noor Jahan. I had never heard of her until I did this interview for this episode uh, with Dr. Ruby Lal of Emory University, who's wonderful. And 
Katie teaches this period in history a lot, so she had heard of her, but there was still this whole aspect of the story that she had never heard. Because Noor Jahan is wildly famous in India. She is a household name. Her story is the story that you hear from your grandmother and your mother. It is a famous, famous story. But her story doesn't tell any of her story. <laughs> the, the story that is famous about Noor Jahan is about her falling in love with Emperor Jahangir and then marrying him. <laughs> and that's her story. Like, she she married him. The end. And it's a beautiful <laughs> love story. I mean, it is. And I think that's important, too, for... Especially um, it, those who study European history and Western history, you have this idea that, like, love wasn't a thing. Courtly, you know, until courtly love, no one fell in love. Nonsense. The Eastern world has been talking about love for thousands of years. But... This love story, this really powerful genre of love story is an important thing to talk about in the way that women influence societies. But it's so frustrating because this woman was amazing mm -hmm. and none of the stuff she did is in her story <laughs> that everyone knows. And so Ruby Lal's biography, which is called Empress, and it's just amazing. It's so great. And I recommend it really strongly. Takes all of that and puts it all back together. And as not a historian myself, but someone who has studied a lot of history and women's studies in one of these related fields, I love when historians acknowledge the power of literature, the power of mythology, the power of story, and that it's not just written off as, well, that's the legend. Yeah, but the legend has affected the history. Right. She is as much her legendary self as she was her historical self now. And so she brings all of those things in together and talks about the intersection of those in ways that I really love. And, but then also tells us the unbelievable forgotten facts about Noor Jahan, such as she was a world-renowned tiger hunter, and she once shot four man-eating tigers with six musket shots from the top of an elephant. <laughs> I I mean, th there's not a better story in the world than that, no matter what else happened. Like, just those right. sentences, right? Man, yeah. she was and our tiger queen. Yeah, she was, <laughs> I mean, she was at the time uh, when only the king, only the emperor is allowed to kill a tiger. Right. And she does it, which is how we know she was... The emperor, she was co-regent with her husband who was either ill or alcoholic or maybe both. Right. And kind of out of the picture, for a lot of it, she took over and she is running it. And instead of, thankfully, running scary sideshow zoos, she is rescuing people from man-eating tigers on the rampage. <laughs> but that, I mean, I just muskets have barely been invented. No one knows how to shoot them. And if anyone has ever shot an old-school like black powder, rifle, musket, something. They are difficult, and they are wildly inaccurate. I mean, if you hit anything within an eight-foot range, you did well. <laughs> and she kills four man-eating tigers in one day with six shots from an elephant, <laughs> which you know is not standing there nicely while tigers nip at its heels and she's shooting a musket. Like, this right. is an impossible job, and she does it. That's 
that woman is, I don't care what else she did, that woman I want to learn about, right? (laughs) And, but she was absolutely incredible. She is taking over this very male-dominated society and ruling and stepping into the role of emperor in very public and meaningful ways and and doing it effectively, that people love her. She is minting coins in her own name, which is the number one sign that, you know, that's how in most of history we know who was in charge there on the coin. Right. And she's doing executive orders with her own seal, not her husband's name, her name. Just really astonishing power that she's wielding. But then, like, her husband gets kidnapped by people who are trying to take over. Probably one of his sons is involved trying to undermine his his rule. And rather than send the army or send one of her stepsons or do political channels or whatever, you know, a good wifey should do, mm-hmm. she gets on another elephant and storms off across India to go rescue him. And then when her stepson sells her out and it doesn't work, she gets captured and she's now captured with him. Rather than feeling bad about that, she goes, great, I'm inside the machine now. This will be even easier. And she stages an elaborate, like, escape coup from inside the prison camp, raises an army under the noses of her captors because she's a woman she couldn't be, and escapes and rides triumphantly back into town with her husband that she has saved. I mean, it's just, it's made up crazy, hilarious nonsense. And it absolutely happened. Right. It's impossible that you did that. And she did it. She was just the coolest, unstoppable force of this Mughal empress. She dressed like a man. She would go hunting. She sometimes dressed like a man, but other times wore it was like the peak of fashion. She was a fashion designer and influenced the entire fashion of 100 years of India. She designed jewelry. She was an artist. She designed tombs. She designed buildings. She shifted the course of Indian architecture forever. Like the most famous building, the Taj Mahal, is based on the tomb she built for her parents. Right. That was wild and and ridiculous white marble. Who uses white marble? We use red sandstone. And she made up this new whole entirely different form. And then everyone went, oh, that's kind of cool, and copied it. And that's where we get the Taj Mahal from her stepson. I, she was just this massive force in society and that she's known for getting married. Yeah. It's frustrating. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Because not only did, yes, she got married, but she kind of fixed the mistakes yeah. that have been occurring or would have occurred under the husband's reign, who, again, was either sick or an alcoholic or whatever, whatnot. And she was like, no, nah, yeah. I got this. I, let, let, me, yeah. let me do it. And not on top of that, she's like, and you're going to see me do it. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to see that and I'm that, the one that's making this change. Right, and that everybody apparently was cool with it. Right. Until, until she rode off on an elephant at the head of the army. That seems to have been the line when her stepson went, okay, stop it. No, I'm in charge now. You're not a man. But, I mean, it's just, it, it's amazing. And I think it it illustrates... The point that we, we as soon as she is out of power, they erase her again. And they not only erase her, they debase all women, that all women are chaotic and unstable, and that's why she was chaotic and unstable, and therefore she was terrible, and we should not talk about her anymore. Right. And it this very effective erasure 
that doesn't just erase her, that we do this over and over and over again. We act like women weren't ever in power. And this comes up in the podcast all the time that we pretend that women ruling is an aberration. That just every once in a while we get a weird Queen Victoria, but it's not the norm, and it doesn't happen very often, and it's and we shouldn't encourage it. Right. And that's nonsense. Women are in power all over the place all the time. Right. And one of our other guests, Pam Toller, who's wonderful, she has a book called Women Warriors that's fantastic. She um, was our guest on another episode, but she talked about when she went into writing that book, she had a list of, you know, a few dozen famous warrior women that she knew about. And she said by the end, she had thousands. She had thousands of names of these women who were rulers and warriors and broke all of these norms, which means they aren't norms. I mean, it right. happens all the time. But we every time we pretend like, oh, this was unusual. And then five years later, it happens again and go, oh, unheard of. Never seen this happen before. Maybe pay attention that it happens a lot and it's normal. Right. But as long as we keep women convinced that women have never been in power, women don't ask for power. Right. It's easier to insist that right. it's not normal. Right. I think that's one of the conversations that we've had with past guests is the fact that there's always a discovery that when we think we know who did the first, there was also someone else who may have done that first. And we just didn't recognize it until yeah. then because they weren't given the credit for the work that yeah. they had done. And then as we keep continuing to dig more and more, we're realizing there's a lot of significant people, specifically women or those who identify as women or non-binary, that just mm -hmm. got passed over. Right. Or at least just the, their idea stolen or their, the credit taken from them. Right. Yeah, I mean, even, even when we give women credit, it's often at the expense of other women, like the famously, and I adore her, Mary Shelley invented science fiction, as we all are told. No, she didn't. Right. Margaret Cavendish invented science fiction 200 years earlier, but we don't pay attention to it, you know? And I love Mary Shelley, but she didn't invent science fiction. Right. It was a thing well before. And, and that we don't talk about the many, many generations and layers of women who have been doing stuff. We pick the one story. Right. And... And Mary Shelley's story is amazing and fantastic, and we should tell it, but we don't need to add things that, you know. Right. Frankenstein stands on its own, whether it was the first time someone had done something like that or not. It's, right. It is peak science fiction. <laughs> right. But it's not the first. And yeah, and I do love yeah. when we talk about these amazing women, whether it's true or not, we do have this fantasized level of, and, and we know beauty does accentuate and help Mm -hmm. <laughs> give some privilege, but the fact Nora John was known as a beauty as one of yeah. her first things, as you recognize, and then all of the soap opera backgrounds <laughs> yeah. behind her. That she was in love with the emperor, but had to marry someone else. And I mean, it's an unusual story anyway, because now the empress is someone who is a widow, right? right. She's already been married. That's mm. not something <laughs> that's supposed to happen, right. you know, but... But he loved her before she got married. So, right. I mean, it's it's an interesting, unusual story, especially from a Western perspective who doesn't understand the way these stories work exactly. in Mughal culture. But it's, it's just, it's a wild ride, right. no matter what you know about her. And, and Ruby Lal had to do all of this detective work to find out these things about her, you know, that yeah, we all, why do they keep talking about her hunting? Why is they, they're so obsessed with her hunting tigers? 
because they were telling us something. Because if you, you know, if we don't know until Ruby Lal digs this up, who was allowed to hunt tigers? The emperor. When they keep talking about this in court documents, they're making a point. She is the emperor. Right. That we we don't have the historical knowledge to understand the clues they've been trying to give us, you know? And I do love that her fact that her name was, and I'm going to butcher this, Mayor Unisa, that she was born with yeah. that name, which was son among women. And then the emperor changed her name to Nurjan, which is the light of the world, right? Right. I love yeah. that that kind of was like the transition for that as well to show the significance of how amazing she was yeah. in influencing the emperor. Yeah, I mean, he absolutely, the, the love story part is not a lie. He absolutely adored her. I mean, right. it was a devoted, passionate love affair. Yeah that also turns into this astonishing story of female power and political boundary pushing and and historical detective work. It's, yeah. it's interesting. It's really, the portraits of her are bizarre and fascinating. There's one of her loading a musket. Right. I mean, what, have you ever seen a royal portrait of a queen where she's loading a musket? No. And she's dressed like a man. The only reason they can tell it's a woman is the very small waist and the henna on her feet. I mean, this broke every boundary of art. Women all look the same in Mughal art, right? It's the right. same woman, the perfect woman with different dresses on. And she doesn't look anything like that. Was that her? The royal artist who did this had never done another portrait like that ever for the rest That's of amazing. his career. So is she insisting? Is she <laughs> saying, no, draw me, draw, you know? Right. Who knows? And mm-hmm. it's so it's so many fun rabbit holes to go down. Like, who right. was this woman? And, how, you know, how did she manage all of this? All of these grown stepsons that are vying for power as soon as her husband dies. and. Yep. It's just, it's fascinating. It is. She's she's such a fascinating woman. I did love that, that there was like a, a poem about yeah. her playing the tiger. Yeah. Did you, like, yeah. It's like, though Nor John be in form a woman in the ranks of men, she's a tiger slayer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That is so good. Yeah, That's making fantastic. it very clear, like, don't mess with her. She's, <laughs> she's in charge here, you know? I mean, unfortunately, it does sound like, oh, she's not one of those women. She's yeah. a different. I mean, that's an unfortunate thing. But at the same time, it kind of is the credit to her that she took a challenge. It was like, nah. I'm not I'm not going to stay behind. I'm going to be the forefront of this. Watch me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will ride an elephant into battle. <laughs> and I will bring my husband home and she did. I mean, it's just amazing. It is. And I I especially love the stories where patriarchy ignores women and gets bitten yeah. for it, right? That over and over again, women, I mean, the Roman Empire, every single time a woman rises up against them, they're like, what is this? We have never seen a woman. We had no idea women could fight. And they don't, they refuse to acknowledge that it's possible. So it keeps happening over right. and over and over. All these women defeat the Roman Empire because they refuse to admit that it might happen. It just happened three years ago, man. <laughs> Pay attention. Yeah, there's nothing more dangerous than an underestimated woman. So <laughs> it's almost yeah, better, that, right? That when you can use that ideology, you know they're not going to pay attention to you. Right. You know, so many spies during the Civil War, spies all the time, who just are absolutely, they know that the men aren't going to think they're anything, so they can right. do whatever they want. Right. I just did an interview about these amazing teenage girls who were the some of the most effective anti-Nazi resistance workers in 
the Netherlands during World War II because they were cute teenage girls. And right. nobody thought the cute teenage girl is going to ride by on her bicycle and assassinate the Nazi captain. But they <laughs> did. I mean, it was just, I love those when you you take the terrible structures you've been given and use them to subvert the power. Those are my favorite stories, right. always. I love it. I'm just so glad people are doing this work because it is something we talk about a lot, how unfortunately these stories have been lost. And there's a part of me that when I hear such amazing stories like these, I'm so glad to hear them. They're great. But I'm also angry that I'm learning them so late in life. Right. Yeah. I would have loved this story about a tiger slayer when I was a kid. I would have loved that. How did this not feature in our history classes? (laughs) Come on. Yeah. You know? How is this not a movie? Yeah. Like a big, you know, yes. video. And <laughs> epic they've done movie. lots in India, right? There's lots of great Bollywood versions of this, right. which I adore Bollywood. So, like, they've done it better than any. You need more dancing anyway. So, <laughs> a lot more we wouldn't have enough dancing. dancing in that fight. My teenage sons, when they were quite young, they've grown up watching Bollywood with me. And one of them, um, we were watching some American, famous American movie, I can't remember. And, and my son at that point, probably about nine, said, The problem with American movies is there aren't enough angry dance offs. <laughs> That is the problem with American movies. It's true. You can only get that in the 50s and 60s. I'm sorry. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh. Like, why? Yeah. Oh, that's that's why we love that's that, true. right? You that's need true. more dance-offs. I mean, I'm just saying, Hollywood, get it together. Yes. Um, <laughs> Agreed. And that's the other part of this, right? That That we, the Western world, in scare quotes, just feel free to absolutely ignore the entire rest of the world. And that, you know, that story doesn't matter. I mean, come on. That story is amazing. And if you want to make kids, you know, my son, uh, my younger son, just about a year ago, just in passing, mentioned that history was boring. (gasps) And I just like, his brother went, oh man, don't, don't, what do you know? What what are you doing? (laughs) It's like, and so I, I pulled it together because I know what he means, right? right? We tell history so badly. And so we were out. I was forcing him to walk with me around this lake. And so for three laps around the lake, I told him just the story of Henry VIII and his three wives and his six wives. Right. And just all the details and people walking past were looking at us like, what? <laughs> That's a weird conversation. And then she was beheaded. <laughs> but... By the end of the lake, I said, so do you think history is boring? He said, no, I think my history teachers are boring. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, but that's like, like, there's so many good stories. And I think it's from where you're from, too, because uh, growing up in Georgia myself, as you can tell from my accent, uh, <laughs> I got a very edited, dumbed down not completely history of things because, you know, when you are from a very politically angled. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how to say all of that, but you yeah, know. Your, your history is it through a very specific filter. Variation. I mean, even to the point when we're talking about Harriet Jacobs, again, that point of slavery wasn't that bad. The Civil yeah. War wasn't based on slavery. It'll more like... Right. Mm, <laughs> Every single one of the states mentioned <laughs> slavery in their statement of secession, but that's probably just a coincidence. Right. I mean, that's kind of like a variation of history. So you start being like, wait, this is not, this history is not pertained. And again, for me, yeah. as an Asian woman, like I call myself brown woman, and I'm like, that's, this does not pertain to me. 
yeah. <laughs> in that level. So you have a very like a skewed version, and I would have loved to, yeah, hear about this badass empress who was shooting up tigers and doing her thing, rescuing her husband and fighting a pretty much a civil battle with her own stepsons because they right. just were afraid of women. I'm like, oh my God, where was that at in my growing yeah. up? I want to know about those heroes. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, you can't be what you can't see. How are we supposed to grow into exactly. tiger shooting, elephant riding, warrior women? No, and I will say, as someone who adores tigers right. a lot, like <laughs> I can't a, even, I can't even bring myself to watch the Tiger King show because... Yeah. It will hurt my heart too much. But she's only shooting man-eating tigers. That's right. True. She's doing this. That are killing people. Defensively. She's not just out shooting tigers. Right. This is they, not a sport. They send, no, they send for the emperor to come and rescue them from the tiger who's killed 100 people. Right. And then she shoots the tiger. Right. That's the kind of awesome, badass warrior queen that I can get behind. Again, it was 1,500, <laughs> so that's a whole different right. level. <laughs> We have some more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Well, I mean, these stories are not just for like a feminist perspective. These stories are yeah. the live realization of yeah. how amo- amazing people are and the fact that w- women are very much ignored and erased through history. And so we have to acknowledge and go beyond and be like, hey, listen to this. This is a fascinating story about a human being. But yeah. because she's a woman or because she has a vagina, people chose to ignore it. But now it's time. This is just, just listen to the good stories if you want to. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, amazingly, half of humanity has done stuff. <laughs> what? And, and it's worth talking about. Yeah, I, I mean, my, my field makes me both very aware of things and very cynical on right. some level. Like, I'm angry all the time yeah. doing these podcasts. Like, right. some of them are super inspiring, but a lot of them I end up just furious. Right. Furious about these women's lives or the things they had to endure or the way they were erased or, you know, it, it's... It's frustrating, and so I do this, and then I teach women's studies, and then I was writing a lot of women's studies stuff, and finally my husband said, I think you need a hobby that's not about feminism, because, like, I just, it was eating me alive, and I thought, you are right, I need something else that is just fun, (laughs) right? That's just positive all the time. Right. But it also makes me unsurprised by things, so, like, I have the platonic ideal of a supportive husband. He is the best there. You could not improve as a person, my husband. Um, And so he is super helpful and supportive and and great on all of this stuff. And he is consistently surprised by how few men listen to our podcast. You know, we have pretty clear demographics. And when, when the demographics came through the first time, he came in just furious. And he said, do you, how many men, what, what percentage of your listeners do you think are men? And I said, ah, three. And he looked at me startled and he said, how did, how did you know? How did you, why? And he just was so angry. He was like incandescent with anger that men aren't listening. He's like, why are men so terrible? Why aren't they <laughs> listening to this? Don't they understand that this is just history? Women's history is not a niche subject. And he like ranted for a long time. And it was very good for my soul to see yes. my husband just so angry that other men just blow this stuff off, right. you know, that it's not a podcast for women. Right. Just because it's about women. Right. Right. 
you can listen to it, boys. Exactly. And I love that. So tell your husband he gets an A-plus from us. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. <laughs> and we are very much approving. Yeah, that, those are very valuable, <laughs> well, he, too. He's like out there. Yeah, I mean, he's out there pushing and challenging people like, oh, you listen to history podcasts? Do you listen to any women's history podcasts? And they're like, <laughs> That's oh. Even That's even better. <laughs> it's like, here's a list of options for you. But, and it's frustrating, right? It is just, it keeps repeating generation after generation. You're trained to believe that women aren't interesting right. and didn't do anything. And even if we do the, what we think is progressive version of, it's not women's fault they didn't do anything. They just weren't allowed to. Right. No, women weren't allowed to write, and so they didn't write anything good. Right. It's not their fault. Rubbish. Yeah. There's right. so much good stuff that's been thrown out. And right. this objective standard of only white men are good writers. Oh, interesting. Who decided? Oh, white men? Yeah. But, <laughs> right. And who's the one that's but, the judges and the, the jurors right. in this moment? There's so much good stuff. You know, when you watch, I'm a huge fan of The Good Place, the TV show, because yeah. there are so many jokes in that show we've never heard before in our lives. Right? We've heard every joke. Yeah. on sitcoms. You always know where the joke is going. Even when they're funny, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, all right, there. And we don't ever know where the jokes are going there because right. they're written by people who've never written for television. We've never let them write before. Right. And it's great. It's not about diversity because we need to check a box. It's because it's better to have more people talking. There Amen. are new stuff you've never heard before. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. Well, Olivia, you are amazing and obviously <laughs> going to be one of our best friends. <laughs> Yay! Because we're going to collaborate again, I have a feeling. That's the um, dream. Yes. And of course, <laughs> let your sister know she is always welcome as well. Would love yeah, to Yeah, hopefully she's, a, she's quarantined with small children uh, and I'm quarantined with teenagers. So. Yes. Mine are happy to ignore me. Right. <laughs> and hers are not. Ah, well, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say this. Women, the mothers with tiny children, children at all during quarantine oh. times are rock stars and heroes. Yes. Because I'm annoyed with my dog sometimes. And <laughs> <laughs> I could just tell her to be quiet. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners where to find you? Yes, we're everywhere. We're everywhere that there are podcasts. It's what's your name, all one word with the apostrophe. Some of them are very picky about getting that apostrophe in there or just Google us. We're also at what's your name podcast.com. And from there, there's links to all the main platforms. And we're also on Spotify and YouTube. Yeah. Awesome. Our website has tons of pictures, and we always try to have pictures and links and more information about all our subjects and our guests who are amazing. That brings us to the end of that wonderful interview with Olivia. Definitely go check out their podcast um, if you want to learn more about these two women or so many other women. And if you would like to email us about women we should be talking about or other podcasts we should be collaborating with, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Thanks as always to our super producer producing from afar, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 